drop. Hey there, everyone. My name is Christian Wynn, the director of StoryFort, and you're listening to StoryFort Presents Voices of Treefort Music Fest, the weekly podcast that dives into the stories behind Boise's Festival of Discovery. Treefort Music Fest brings in hundreds of artists from all over the globe every March, though, as you probably know, we were scheduled for March 2020, postponed until September 2020, and now, because of COVID and the state of the world that we're all getting a little tired of, but we're pushing forward with more episodes, now we're going to be bringing you Story Fort proper in September of 2021. We're still here to tell you about all things Treefort on this podcast. And today we're going back out to the garden, the Idaho Botanical Garden, which is on the outskirts of downtown near the really cool old Idaho Penitentiary. And we have some poets, we have some filmmakers, we have some body positive activists on stage um, for you on this episode, live from the garden. This is part of our Bloom series. We ran a safe summer reading series out at uh, Idaho Botanical Garden. And it was a really cool collaboration between the the garden and Storyfort. And we're lucky enough to have awesome creatives like Amy Pence-Brown on today, who's a poet, a writer, a body-positive activist. We had Lily Yasuda, who's a filmmaker, an actor, a writer, and Russell Wilson, a very awesome spoken word and written poet and writer and all-around great human. So we have all three on stage, live from the garden. We hope you're doing well. We hope you're staying safe and positive, and uh, we'll see you at the fest eventually. But first, this episode. Enjoy. Thanks for showing up. Uh, my name is Christian Wynn and the director of Story Fort, and we've gotten a great uh, opportunity to partner with the garden this summer um, and actually get people out of the house and get some of these awesome artists up on stage. And this is the fifth installment, and uh, right now it's the last one we have in the series. But we're hoping to do a couple of really cool, like one-off events out here throughout the late summer. Um, some readings some performance stuff and I don't think anybody from the garden is up here they're down in the kiosk still but you can check out their website uh, for all sorts of things they're doing they're doing some stuff with uh, BCT doing some stuff with I saw water bear bar has been doing some sort of bar event out here and they also do the great garden escape on Thursdays which I'm pretty sure there is one this Thursday so you can find out more about that but this series has been really fun and super engaging and just nice, like I said, to get folks out. And we've kind of got the momentum now that we're finishing up the series. But uh, we have some awesome artists tonight. And Forrest up here is one of our assistants. I want to say thanks to Forrest. Thanks to Brett, who's been doing, doing our sound. And I see Allison Meyer walking up here, too, who's also one of our StoryFort assistants and team members. So, Russell, <clears throat> I will read your short pithy bio. You can come on up and be our first reader. 
we collaborate with Big Tree Arts, which is a spoken word and poetry nonprofit in town. Some of you are probably familiar with, and they do a lot of really great um, slam events and spoken word stuff, and they're one of our fiscal sponsors as well, which is fantastic. But we did a contest to win a pass at Tree Fort and get to perform. It was going to be at the Egyptian Theater during Story Fort in March with uh, this very amazing poet, uh, Olivia Gatwood. And Russell was our winner, so we wanted to get her in the mix here. So Russell is a 29-year-old mess. These are her words. So 29-year-old mess. Her recent accomplishments include writing letters to the moon, calling her mother, and taking every piece of advice she's received from a yogi teabag to heart. She is grateful every day to be writing. So Russell, come on up. All right, so just tell us a little bit about what you're going to be reading from, and I'll go sit down, and we'll chat a little bit afterwards. Awesome. Hi, friends. Um, I just brought a couple of poems to read. Um, yeah, I thought I'd uh, kick off this party with a good old-fashioned breakup poem. Um, I wrote this uh, a couple years ago, but I still like it because I, uh, I think it's the most compassionate I've ever been, and I think if I were to write this same piece now, I... I think the bitterness would, would seep in, so I like to remember a time when I was uh, my, my best self. Part one, in which I make up a stupid metaphor about losing you. It was kind of beautiful, the way you left me. Beautiful the way a house caught fire is beautiful. You are losing everything, but it's cold outside, so you hold your hands out to the flame. I wonder, sweetheart, why I am always the house. I wonder how many times I'm going to have to burn to the ground, and I wonder why you are so convinced you are the fire. You are not the fire. You are the boy with a match. You are the boy on the street losing everything. I want to tell you that there are other ways to stay warm. Look at me. There was a house here. You could have come inside. The door was open. Yeah, I've written this poem before. The thing is, it feels pretty good to be the burning house. There isn't any responsibility in that. I don't have to be brave, I only have to hurt, but of course, I am not always the burning house. I'm no stranger to starting fires. Behind me is just scorched earth. Some places are still smoking. And I know you can't just stumble into every open door you come across. That not every house is home, I know that sometimes when you go in, the door gets locked behind you. I know that sometimes the only way to wake up is to burn a nightmare to the ground I know. So, maybe you just did what you had to do? And if you ask me, that's a good a reason as any to burn. I promise I won't give you any trouble. I won't even let my ashes settle on the laces of your boots. I never meant any harm. I love you. Now light me up until you can't see it anymore. Part two. When you get right down to it, it was kind of beautiful, the way you left me. I remember you sitting at the foot of your bed, looking up at me like a kid who'd just broken a lamp. You said that you were sorry and that you did love me. You asked me not to leave just yet. And there was nothing left to do but undress each other. When it was over, you put your head on my chest and closed your eyes, and while you slept, I tried to memorize the room. It's strange to know you're never going to see something again. 
I kept thinking about my toothbrush on your bathroom counter and how I won't know when you finally throw it away. So, I guess it wasn't fire after all. But that toothbrush on the counter sure did look like wreckage. And your skin sure did feel like a lit match. And then uh, this next one that I brought, I um, when I first do, started doing performance poetry, I was... Uh, doing a lot of list poems, and this is one of the first list poems I ever wrote. Um, it's a, a few things I've learned from my brief time on this godforsaken planet from me to me. One, you don't get to be good at everything. There are certain things that no matter how much time and energy you spend, you'll never understand, like math, the application of liquid eyeliner, or threesomes. Practice doesn't always make perfect. Sometimes practice just makes for a lot of unnecessary hours with you naked, not knowing what the fuck to do with your hands. Two. There will come a day when you will attempt to shave off all of your pubic hair because you're Italian and you've always wondered what your vagina actually looks like. This will be a mistake. And you will spend the rest of the night with a cold compress between your legs, praying for the sweet release of death. Three. You're going to sleep with your ex-boyfriend, who you are still madly in love with. Afterwards, he will tell you all about the only girl he's ever loved. Honey, he is not talking about you. And you'll look at him with fucking cum drying in your hair as he says, you know, you're a really good listener. Men have told you this before. See, you make them feel known. They make you feel like a rearview mirror they can pick their teeth in front of. Four. Most days, you will feel like you're at the end of your rope. Five, you are still a poet, even when you write the same poem over and over and over again. Six, you are still a poet, even if you never write about when you were eight years old. Ugly things happen sometimes. Maybe it's time to stop losing sleep because you can't figure out how to craft the line. You don't have to make this one beautiful. Seven, I believe that the music box was invented for those of us that wish to grieve quietly. Eight, in kindergarten, apples and peanut butter made you the most popular kid at snack time. Now they make you the most popular kid in your cubicle. Some things really are that simple. Nine, people are not maps. Stop following them. Ten, the thing is, kiddo, you don't really know anything yet. You're young. Just be young. Um, so we're in a year of big change right now. And um, it certainly has been that for me. And so this next one is uh, just sort of about that. And maybe you miss your mother. Maybe you forgot to put your shoes on. Maybe you are here and the dog is sleeping in the grass behind you, which might have been fine, except you can't remember how to turn around, which is absolutely not fine because behind you is the house and the dog and your shoes and the postcard you never sent your mother and the last place he knew how to be kind. And you are here. And it is so beautiful, it makes you nauseous. Seasick, maybe. I mean, look at all that sky. Maybe you'll never get used to it.
Um, so a couple of years ago, I got into a really terrible fight with um, the boy I was dating at the time. And I wound up uh, at a local bar at like noon and I got very drunk and uh, ended up telling uh, the bartender who was unfortunately there my, my life story. And um, it got me thinking about uh, that joke structure. Um, you know, if a girl walks into a bar and that's sort of a, where this came from. Girl walks into a bar and the bartender says, we're closed. Girl walks into a bar and the bartender says, we're closed. Girl says, please, bartender pours her a drink. Girl walks into a bar and nobody says anything. Girl walks into a bar, sits down, starts to cry. Bartender takes a cocktail napkin and wipes her eyes. Girl says, you are a very good bartender. Bartender smiles and says, I know. Girl walks into a bar and doesn't want to be there. Girl walks into a bar and doesn't want to be anywhere else. Girl walks into a bar and turns into a lampshade. Girl walks into a bar and the bartender says, have a seat. Girl tells bartender everything. Girl thinks she and bartender are friends. Bartender adds this to his resume. Girl walks into a bar, has a heart attack and dies. Girl walks into a bar, chokes on a peanut, and dies. Girl walks into a bar because she is tired of dying. Girl walks into a bar. Bartender says, we're closed. Girl says, I don't understand. Bartender says, that's just the way it goes sometimes. Girl walks into a bar holding a missing persons flyer with her face printed right in the center. She asks the bartender, have you seen this girl? Bartender says, sure, all the time. Girl walks into a bar. Bartender says, what'll it be? Girl says, I just need to clear my head. Bartender has been bartending a long time. He makes her an old fashioned. Girl walks into a bar, orders a drink, sits down. Girl and bartender chat about the weather. Bartender pulls out a picture of his daughter, says, she's six months old today. Girl says, she looks just like you. Bartender smiles. Girl says, I hate kids. Girl walks into a bar and starts crying. Bartender is new. Bartender says, cheer up. Girl says, that's not why girls walk into bars. Girl walks into a bar. Bartender says, what'll it be? Girl says, I just need to clear my head. Bartender has been bartending a long time. He hands her a ticket to Antarctica. Girl boards flight to Antarctica. Girl forgets to bring a jacket. Girl walks into a bar and the bartender says, how was the trip? Girl says, it was cold. Bartender says, that's just the way it goes sometimes. So I've been um, writing letters to the moon since I was a kid. And um, yeah, I consider us close personal friends. And uh, this is a letter that I wrote to the moon fairly recently. Dear Moon, I keep thinking about my beginnings. I keep thinking about how the house caught fire in the middle of the night and I didn't burn. How we went back the next morning to see the rats hanging limp from the rafters, to see the goldfish belly up. My mother held me up to the wreckage and said, look baby, fire will come for you again and again and again. It will take things you love but you have to look at the bones. 
You have to look, sweetheart, or it's like it never happened. Like it never existed in the first place. And she was right, Moon. Fire keeps coming. And I've done pretty good. Kept a tidy cemetery, a sweet little grave digger, no body has gone unmarked. But I'm afraid, Moon. I'm afraid the flames caught up with me this time. You can smell the smoke in my hair, feel the heat in my throat. I'm burning, Moon, faster than yesterday's newspaper. Moon, do you remember the time I was seven and didn't drown? I remember water looking up. Rivers are quiet and eyes open and the water is cold. The kind of cold where you can only think about one thing at a time and isn't that wonderful, Moon, to have to give each thing its due? I don't know. It all just feels so accidental, this business of going up in flames. Here I am, a one-man forest fire, but who will come to witness my aftermath? Who will come for my bones? I want to know that I happened, that I existed in the first place. I don't want to end this way, Moon. I want rivers. I want quiet and eyes open and one thing at a time. Oh, Moon. Write me soon, sweet friend. All my love. And then, um, I just brought one more. And I know we started this with a breakup poem, so I thought I'd end it with a love poem. Um, I... I wrote this a few years ago, and uh, it's really fun to look back at these moments um, when you were so open to another human being. I think that's always kind of nice. When the boy you love catches you staring at him, he might ask what you're thinking about. If he does, tell him. Tell him that his skin looks like a million windows thrown open. Tell him his mouth bears a striking resemblance to the first poem that taught you how to feel human again. Tell him you think his socks are funny. Then ask if he'd like a waffle. And when he says yes, toss him the keys and go eat your fucking heart out. Now when the boy you love catches you staring at your hands as if perhaps they are not your hands, he might ask if something is wrong. If he does, tell him. Tell him that sometimes you feel like a ghost haunting your own body. Tell him you don't always know how to be in your skin. Tell him... Tell him you had a hard day. After all this, he might ask to hold you. If he does, let him. If he doesn't, fucking ask him to hold you because this boy, this boy that you love, will hold you. And when he does, you might realize that for the first time you don't feel like a bookmark or a mirror or a photograph of a face that came before yours. You will feel like the skin you were born in. Thanks, y'all. All right, thank you so much, Russell. <clears throat> Look at this crowd, this is amazing. This is so awesome. Um, let's give her another round of applause. That was so good. Award-winning, yes. <laughs> so, it's a bummer that you didn't get to read it, the Egyptian, just yet. Oh, but that's okay. This is just as nice. This is just, okay. <laughs>
this is awfully nice out here for sure. But um, yeah, just to f figure out how your poetry's been going and your writing in general during all this time. What's your process been like in this lockdown-ish time, and how are you feeling about what you've gotten done? You know, it's um, it's funny. I've been super stressed out about that, um, and I've been I started to slowly like talk to some artists in my life and some friends and family. I'm like, guys, I'm not feeling super creative right now. Are you all feeling super creative? And um, yeah, it's been, it's not been a time of great productivity for me. You'd think you have all this space to reflect and, and usually um, new things really seem to come from that. Um, but I'm just sort of been in anxiety mode for <laughs> the past couple of oh, months. <laughs> so I've been doing a lot of journaling. Um, yeah. And uh, I've been writing a lot of moon letters and and uh, keeping it pretty casual and not worrying so much about getting some finished work done, which has been good, I think. It's a difficult though, for sure. I've been asking a lot of people that question and just kind of expressing my own feelings more yeah. like yours, but uh, I feel sort of guilty. Someday, yeah, you know, someday yeah. <laughs> I feel but. like I'm wasting time. I know, but uh, that said, on the moon subject, I'm very curious how you came to write moon poems or moon letters. <laughs> I don't know. I just remember being a kid, and um, I it felt like a a safe place to send things, and um, I always had a big imagination, and I just um, sort of imagined a mailbox on the moon, and. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's been um years and years of of letters, uh, one way so far, but I'm hoping for a response soon. I was gonna ask. Nothing yet. You <laughs> Nothing said? yet. Okay. Um, it's unrequited love, but <laughs> I'm still hopeful. Yeah, and so maybe just one last thing: there. what do you see moving forward for your poetry and uh, for your life as a writer and an artist and a creative? And you're fairly new to Boise, if I remember. Yeah, I've just been here about a year. Um, so, so brand new, um, Boise has been very kind. Five or six good months. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I just, uh, I'd like to, um, I don't know, I don't know where, where it's going to take shape. I just kind of want to keep trying to put pen to paper and, and see what comes out. But, um, I'm excited that things like this are starting to happen and, and see people seem to be talking more about their work and sharing their work in new ways. And that seems really exciting to me. Um, and so I, I want to be as involved in that as possible. Well, that's fantastic. We're happy to have you here. And it's Thank nice to so be able much. to, you know, have a lovely evening with so many people showing up and uh, your awesome words and the letters to the moon and the breakup poem and all of it was really wonderful. <laughs> Thank a you. A lot so of fire, much. too. Right? Oh, yeah. That seems to pop up. It's <laughs> the moon and fire. Well, we thank you so, so much. Thank and you for um, having hang out me. for the other two artists. And Oh, I know. I'm so excited. Yeah. So you're good to go. Thank okay. you. And one other thing, too, I did failed to mention about the garden. Um, like a lot of institutions um, in our area and far beyond, they had to cancel like all their giant, more lucrative events, like the outlaw field events out here. And I know that they're in a position of really needing some help to stay open um, through the whole season. And then they were one of their big things too, is that winter garden to glow, which is, uh, Gosh, thousands of people come through, and obviously that's probably in a bit of jeopardy. But they have a campaign. You can go to their website, um, Idaho, Idaho Botanical Garden, and they have a campaign to take donations, or if you just want to sign up to be a member, that would be fantastic. So it's a pretty amazing place out here. 
All right. Well, Lily, you can kind of get in the staging spot over here. And I'm sure several of you know Lily from her awesome film that came out, at least premiered. We can chat about that maybe a little bit after she reads, but um, it's called Like Love, by the way. Yes. So Lily Yasuda is a writer, educator, and filmmaker. She was born and raised in Boise and earned her Bachelor of Arts in, in Screenwriting from Chapman University. She currently serves as the Grants Operation Manager for the Alexa Rose Foundation. She is an alumni of Foothills School, Balance Dance Company, and Boise Contemporary Theater's Theater Lab Program. She has performed with Alley Repertory, Homegrown, and Campfire Theater Companies, and enjoys flexing her creative muscles both on and off the stage. Her first feature film, Like Love, premiered in Boise in 2020, on which she served as the writer, producer, and lead actress. When not writing, she can usually be found making lists organizing small objects, and having a variety of strong opinions. So, Lily, come on up. Cool, thanks for being here. And one of the things we have going with this series, um, I guess about 10 of our 15 artists we featured in the series are CCC um, grant recipients. Uh, which was uh, Tree Fort Music Fest and the Morrison Center and I don't know I mean, Boise Arts and History Department all got together to grant a thousand dollars to 68 or 69 artists and Lily is one of them. So it was a kind of a project-based grant proposal, not really a grant, just a, an award. And um, you have a pretty cool project that's a little bit of a departure than from like filmmaking and acting, obviously. So Yes, unfortunately, I did not get the vibe that filmmaking would be happening at this juncture, so we decided to move in a different direction. Well, I'll let you tell us all about that, and we'll have a few questions afterwards. Great. Thank you so much, Christian. Um, wow, Russell was so amazing. Now I'm all like like all a, all a, a petter up here. Um so the piece I'm about to read is a personal essay, again, made possible courtesy of the CCC Fund. So thank you so much to those folks uh, through the Morrison Center, Tree Fort, et cetera. And this piece is called Optics, or How to Be Good When No One is Watching. In the pre-global meltdown turned purgatory of isolation that rendered any and all competitive, performative, comparison-based goodness irrelevant, I was thriving. At 23, I was still struggling to accept the terrible freedom of life outside academia. While college had provided a strict framework of rules, the world was sorely lacking in anything resembling obligation. Aside from paying my rent and buying food, there was very little that had to be done. The things that filled my time in college, internships, the gym, sorority events, had been reinforced through my peers. I worked out because my roommates did. I took a summer internship because everyone I knew was doing the same thing. It wasn't that I resented the things I ultimately committed to. I, I enjoyed my internships and appreciated my newly toned arms, but I needed the pressure, the expectation, the secret shame of being inadequate to motivate me. Having been raised through the world of dance and later theater, I was accustomed to the adrenaline high of an audience, the dazzling tightrope between success and failure, applause and silence, performative excellence whose beauty lay truly in the eye of the beholder, it made no, almost no difference who was watching, so long as there was someone available to pass judgment. 
school was the ideal setting for my neuroticism to shine as everyone's worth was numeric. Test score, GPA, SAT, everything could be quantified. There was no need to worry about where you fit in as your value could be displayed, often publicly, as a paper trophy of superiority. It would be easy to view this neediness as evidence of an ego complex, proof that I was a raging narcissist determined to show off to anyone who would watch. In reality, I was a high-functioning depressive. Unable to motivate myself, I relied on fear and shame to bully me into productivity. Alone, I sprawled on the floor, surrounded by empty Eurofoils, asleep at odd hours or else stoned into complacency. My brain was too alarming at full speed, and as such needed to be drugged into a catatonic state that might pass for relaxation. Unsupervised, I was a hedonistic slug, but thrown a judgmental teacher or an unexpected deadline, and I couldn't be more alive. In college, I studied screenwriting, and while a film degree wasn't much in the way of a resume builder, it allowed me to feel the small, dark thing inside of me that assured me that sloth, my secret shame, was synonymous with artistic genius. Unlike banking or medicine, the arts allow for a certain degree of self-destruction. It's not only acceptable, but widely assumed that you are, at your core, a dysfunctional mess. Artists might be poor, unkempt, or even suicidal, and rather than urging them towards a therapist or a toothbrush, society allows them to stew in their anxieties as bad teeth and casual hoarding are brushed off under the glossier umbrella of, quote, quirkiness. I understood that these bouts of ennui must be counteracted with manic episodes of productivity. Aaron Sorkin spent a decade addicted to cocaine, but he still managed to write The West Wing, so as long as I could deliver quality work, my depressive, procrastinating tendencies would be forgiven. As long as I could continue to do it all, I was safe. If sloth came naturally, mania was aided in large part by the highly public classroom setting. Unlike math or history, where a bad grade might be hastily shoved into a backpack, screenwriting consisted almost entirely of roundtable discussions. Everything brought to class would be scrutinized by a dozen or so people. You would be vulnerable not only to the teacher's notes, but those of your classmates as well. A battle royale of theme and tone, character, and plot points. Moreover, your worth extended beyond your talent. We were there to sell ourselves. How much you talked, the kind of notes you gave, whether you were funny or vulnerable, open to feedback, these things mattered. Interpersonal navigation was an arena I was both better at and more interested in than grades. A social currency that was inherently rewarding where a scribbled A-plus was not. I was determined to prove myself, and this began with presentation. My best friend and I dressed up religiously for class, both arriving in heels and dresses, lace bodysuits and tasteful blazers. A different course would have been attended in gym shorts and a hangover, but writing classes were treated as work. We arrived early with crisp lipstick and perfect eyeliner, took seats in the front, and opened our MacBooks in anticipation. Elsewhere, we might have been seen for what we were, slightly dorky overachievers with plain faces and ridiculous eyeshadow, but here we were exceptional. We took heaps of notes, prepared thoughtful critiques. In private, we may have struggled, but in public, we shined. We both excelled at keeping our emotions contained, fear squashed under glossy exteriors. I knew we worked twice as hard because we felt we had something to prove, if not hide. I needed her as an accomplice, someone to hold me accountable, to make me good. Alone, I was not sure I could be motivated to do the things that needed to be done, to find time for the gym and the internship the script, and the screening. But between her close praise and the faculty's distant approval, I could cling to the feeling that I was doing it. Getting things done. I saw the carrot but needed the stick to lure me closer, and every class presented yet another golden opportunity to prove that I was, once again, the best. 
It should come as no surprise that leaving college was something of a shock. Gone were my grades, my scores. I became aware that life offered no stars, no rewards for good behavior. Moreover, I realized that artistic approval is far more sporadic than I had previously known. Instead of getting a weekly, good job, I sat at home staring at my laptop until my eyes bled, praying that someone, anyone, would find my work interesting or relevant. Feedback was now synonymous with commercial value. I didn't write for me, I wrote for my agent, my future boss. Any idea felt trite and overdone. While my classmates might have been easily impressed, the open market was bottomless, hungry. I would finish a script and receive a pat on the back, only to be immediately met with a crest question. What else do you have? When can we see it? I make a feeble attempt to start a new project, then sleep for eight days. Again, on the floor, I wonder what's wrong with me. Why am I not more driven, more committed? Why am I not better? Daylight hours become impossibly long, possibly long as I try to find something to do with my time. I pick up a second job, then a third. I attend dance classes, make plans with everyone I know. I pack my schedule in the hope that this will force me to be more productive. As if this will force me to be more precious with my free time and by extent encourage me to write. I hear a story about a friend who gets up at 5 a.m. every day to write for an hour before her children are awake. I imagine I will become this woman. That I will wake up in the darkness and make a smoothie before settling down to invest in my art. I dream about running a marathon, of joining CrossFit. Instead of doing any of these things, I sleep. And when I wake up, there's nowhere to go. In the early days, the pandemic seemed distant. It was two countries away, then several states. It arrived so suddenly that I'm struck off guard, unsure how to prepare other than buy several cases of black beans and take to sanitizing my car keys upon entering the house. Like the rest of the world, I'm so concerned about physical survival that I don't have time to consider the more abstract casualties. I don't recognize the utility of social outlets until they're gone, nor do I realize how much I rely on others to direct my day-to-day. I don't miss going out so much as I miss being seen. The actor in me misses the performance of my old life, the tiny victories of dressing up, feeling beautiful in a public space. Just as I don't miss bars or restaurants, I don't miss dating, per se, only the kinetic energy of being lusted after. Soft touch of being chosen or wanted in the drunken splendor that is often mistaken for love. Combine that loss with a lifetime of seeing myself through another's eyes, and the result is truly devastating. As the dialogue diverged beyond the public health crisis, I began to familiarize myself with the concept of optical allyship. The idea that more often than not, those engaging in anti-racist discourse may shy away from long-term systemic change in favor of surface-level support. This is also called performative allyship, as it allows one to feel that they are making a difference while having their good behavior applauded through the echo chamber of friends and followers. It allows folks to maintain their social standing, to protect the illusion of their own goodness, while continuing to participate in and even support the systems that created that problem in the first place. This is problematic because it often results in applauding the wrong people for their Insta stories while balking at the real work of changing the culture we inhabit. I consider this at length and feel a twinge of familiarity, the unpleasant sensation that I am all too accustomed to the optics of goodness without real change, the well-intended emptiness of trying without trying, smiling only in front of a crowd. I think of the many, many white men I know whose righteous insistence that they are woke or into strong women reads only as a further red flag of what my friend refers to as sweaty guy syndrome. The try-hard desperation to prove a man is not, quote, the problem, which more often than not is a massive indicator that said guy is, in fact, a problem. 
I consider my own sweaty guy, the part of me that needs, aches so badly to be exceptional, who yearns to be seen at the bar, performing feminine goodness for everyone to see. A more optimistic writer might end this piece with a blueprint for reform. She might have emerged from the other side of her own narrative, started CrossFit, or taken to Skyping an accountability buddy. She's probably tall and blonde, sporting Lululemon leggings as she jogs on the sidewalk at 6 a.m. And tragically, I'm not that woman, nor am I optimistic enough to think I will become her. I haven't the faintest idea to become, on how to become wholly self-actualized in a vacuum, and I find it difficult to believe that we're all inherently motivated to be hyper-fit, laser-precisioned work robots without colleagues or a calendar. I still derive a great amount of joy from an afternoon nap, and while my sporadic writing hours might not be ideal, they still manage to get the job done. However, I think there's much to be said for seeing the world through your own eyes. To see yourself not with the scrutiny of an alien observer or militants of a drill sergeant, but to live your life alone or otherwise, fully, completely, presently, and leave the sweaty guy at home. One day, I have no doubt, I'll re-inherit the structure I'd grown accustomed to. I look forward to having an office, attending a class, throwing a party. I can only hope that in the meantime, I find some kernel of goodness separate from the competition of the real world. Satisfaction of creation motivated entirely from within. A seed that might grow, even thrive, when absolutely nobody is watching. Thank you. Awesome. Lily Yasuda. Very good. That was some fantastic stuff. Thank you. A good look. So your project is basically had to do with writing a personal essay. Yeah, it was pretty open-ended. I my CCC fund was for two personal essays and I think under like the broad category of like loneliness and isolation, but I wanted to leave it I was um pleased that they allowed me to leave it sort of open-ended cuz I think at the time we were applying in March or whatever uh quite frankly I could not have fathomed uh what specific nuance of this experience I might want to talk about uh several months later. Absolutely. And yeah, the the fund was set up just to give artists and creatives around the, the, the area just some money and support. Um, I did actually just see an interesting article, by the way, in the Statesman, I think today. Um, they had done an article on some other grant or award winners. Um, and so you had mentioned like kind of the notion of isolation um, as part of the whole bit. Um, how did your life pivot? I mean, you were out making the movie, showing the movie. <laughs> promoting the movie yep. and then all of a sudden how was that yeah i mean i think to the um sort of core of uh this piece um i feel unusual in the sense that my day-to-day -day between say february and now has not changed drastically i um mostly work from home uh for the alexa rose foundation which is fantastic um and uh, i'm a pretty solitary animal by nature um but feeling that a lot of that um kind of core accountability um, and performative nature of the work, certainly uh, work that is literally performative as an actor and um, through the film stuff. Um, but uh, just, I think, in kind of a day-to-day -day way has been pretty dramatic. But uh, overall, I, I feel very fortunate uh, uh, compared to other folks I know. That's fantastic. And also, yeah, I guess also with the essays, are you do you write much like personal essay or is this kind of a, a big departure? Uh, yeah, I think it's rare for me to share that work. Um, I don't have like a journal per se, but um, the work I write for myself is uh, is certainly prose. I, I'm not writing, whipping out like screenplays of the day in my free time. So um, it's nice to uh, be sharing this kind of work that is uh, obviously very different from the uh, the film stuff that I'm usually more attached to. Right. I mean, a very super honest essay for sure. Um, that was 
something that actually your mom, Jodine, was here not long ago. She had a very, and she's here tonight, right in front. Um, and so our first mother-daughter combo, but also it's interesting that uh, her piece, was, your piece reminded me of what she was doing too, a very honest look at her life in the pandemic. I um, think she's handling it better than I am, but yes. I think so, okay. Uh, but on a slightly different front, I guess the film front, I'm very curious about how that looks to you right now because you're yeah. you premiered in January or February. Yeah, February, uh, Valentine's Day week, and uh, I'm glad we did not push three weeks later because that would have uh, shattered my soul into several hundred pieces. Um, so no, it was great. We did a premiere at the Egyptian that was very well attended and um, was fun to share uh, like love with a Boise audience. We shot that project here and most of our crew and cast were local. So it was an exciting opportunity to share that with um, the people that really made this possible. Yeah, maybe tell us a little bit about the film. Yeah, uh, the, I really nailed this spiel because I've been talking about this for approximately 700 years. Um, yeah, so Like Love is a uh, modern day uh anti-romantic comedy if you will about two best friends a guy and a girl girl played by me guy played by a gentleman named joseph bricker and um they are perfect for each other in every way were not for one very small problem she is not into him however as women everywhere have learned sometimes that's not the point and how hard could it be to fall in love with the guy right um as our film will tell you it is harder than you would think and that is really kind of an inversion on traditional romantic comedy tropes and um uh, taking a more sort of feminist lens on um, why women say yes when they mean no and uh, how men can be better at hearing no in a variety of ways. Um, but it is, in fact, a comedy, I promise. Um, we uh, crowdfunded here locally. We shot in Boise of tw in 2018. And then we premiered this February of 2020. And uh, as of Two weeks ago, I'm proud to say we've been accepted into three film festivals. We will be premiering, uh, thank you, we'll be premiering in uh, Toronto in early September. Um, and then we've also got into the Spirit of Independence Festival in the UK and the Lady Filmmakers Festival in Beverly Hills. So we've got a little bit of, a uh, little bit of everything all over the, all over the place. And we've still got like, I think 15 more to hear from. So I really wanted, I was like, we're not going to get in anywhere. And then I was like, we got three. And then I'm like, now I want five because I think it'll look good on the poster. So fingers crossed for five, but uh, very happy that we have gotten some traction. Yeah, congrats. Um, how does that work? So you're talking about this September. How is mm -hmm. how's the film festival world working right now? Yeah, so tragically, uh, clearly physical film festivals are definitely more than 30 people uh so everything's happening online this year i that's to my knowledge across the board everywhere um so we're still waiting to hear kind of their specs and timeline like some places it's like you'll have like a an actual like premiere date where it'll be like oh everyone has to log on at like 7 p.m to watch the movie and then sometimes it'll just be like if you buy a festival pass you can access for the duration of the festival um if you we have some uh people on instagram out there you can follow us at like love movie track us on any social woo um and uh, we'll have some more details about passes and all of that kind of stuff but uh so not as sexy and fun as like getting to go in person um but still exciting to uh, like honestly at this point i feel like everyone's like oh are you so excited to have your work shown and yes but uh our boise premiere was so much fun that to me was really like the thing uh so now i'm just really excited to see what other people are making um we'll uh, most of the, all the festivals we've gotten into are pretty specifically micro budget so like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars or less um 
which I promise you, if you don't know anything about filmmaking, is actually like negative eight dollars. Um, so I'm excited to to see other people around the world and what they've been up to. Yeah, well, congrats on that. Thank you. And I hope you get up to five and beyond. So um, maybe just one last question about what you are doing now. You have this project. Yeah. Um, and then film-wise, are you kind of, I don't know, where, where do you stand right now with that process? <laughs> uh, yeah, I um, I finished my next feature script in like February or March. It's called Girls Like Her. It'll be my directorial debut. So in like 100 years when that's allowed, uh, I, I think fingers crossed, like I would love if we went into production in like 2024 would be great because um, I'm also looking to build up my directing reel a little bit between now and then. I was supposed to be directing some shorts, which are obviously on hiatus for the moment. Most of my work tends to be um, pretty explicitly about um, sex and sexuality. And uh, tragically, you can't really have actors like make out right now. That's not not cool. Um so yeah so as far as physical production that's kind of on hold but excited to move forward with this feature and um i'm being submitted for like some tv staffing jobs so would be exciting if i uh if i made some big girl money from my house um and this year because of covid etc all writers rooms will be remote so a lot of production that's uh or development, I suppose, that's happening in like the LA area um, is becoming more accessible to folks who have rep but don't necessarily live in the California area. So, uh, fingers crossed for that. Yes, yeah. big stuff. That's awesome. Yeah, well, thank thanks for being here and part of this series yeah, and a awesome. wonderful essay. And um, one more round of applause for Lily. Thank you so much. Cool. And um, yeah, we'll get this all cleaned up for Amy and. Yes, what was I going to say? Oh, yes, our, this is being recorded, and we do put it out there um, on our podcast, Story 4 Presents, Voices of Tree 4 Music Fest, which is available on all the major platforms. Brett, who's doing our sound, is the one of the, the leads of this great uh, <clears throat> podcast network in Boise called Eavesdrop. So you can find stuff there at ease-drop.com. So that's cool. And also Radio Boise, our friends over there are going to be airing some of this on their straight theater shows. So keep an eye out for that. Um, oh, yes, I was going to promote the idea of owning a piece of tree fort, too. I don't know if you guys have seen that. Um, it's a crowdfunding source um, or resource, I should say, that uh, you can buy like shares in part of the festival. So it's starting at $100. Um you can be an owner or part owner of the awesome festival that is Tree Ford and is now taking place, of course, in September of 2021. But uh, in the meantime, trying to stay afloat and put on some events um, like this and some other shows that they're planning to try to try to work out in the fall and do some remote things in the winter, too. So, all right, we'll I'll start. Amy, you can, you're staged already. Perfect. So, Amy Pence-Brown. Some of you may have heard of some of the awesome work she's been doing on many fronts in our community, but this is how she wants us to know about it. In these words, Amy Pence Brown is a fat feminist mother who believes in opening her mouth and her heart. From both of these places, she tells stories as a writer on her blog and other local and national publications, as a historian giving tours and lectures, and as a visual artist cre <coughs> excuse me, creating subversive stitchings and performance pieces. She has been a body image activist for the past 11 years, and her message about the value of all bodies, no matter their size, has been covered by numerous international media outlets. She continues to lead the body justice revolution 
through public speaking and education, including on the TEDx stage, at conferences around the country, in classrooms to students young and old, and in the Boise Rad Fat Collective, a radical Facebook group with 2,300 people. She's also the organizer of Rad Camp, a body positive boot camp for feminists and feminist teens, and Be Rad, Be You, a body image workshop for girls aged 10 to 12. Pez Brown is currently working on a body of work called Poems in a Pandemic, writing about things like parenting three kids, homeschooling, sex, fear, bodies, joy, death, and more. So come on up, Amy. And also a CCC award winner um, for this project you're going to be reading from. So it's a series of poems that you can let us know what it's about. And thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Can everyone hear me? I have a whole bunch of poems to read to you. I've actually <clears throat> written about 21 thus far in my Poems in a Pandemic series. I'm not reading all 21 to you tonight. I'm reading about 10. Uh, and I started writing them, obviously, in March. And I'm reading the ones I selected for you tonight. I'm reading them roughly in chronological order from when I wrote them. So starting with the first one in March. And the last one I picked I probably wrote last week, maybe three days ago or so. Christian already did a great job introducing my work and, and sort of what I do. And I'll tell you a little bit about each poem and my process or thoughts behind it as I introduce it. Um, this first one, uh, while sheltering in place, as we all know, is super necessary, um, it was and is still pretty necessary. It felt in the beginning really stifling, uh, especially with kids. I have three children. Shelter in place. I yelled at my son again, two strikes this time and one more you lose Minecraft for another day. As I said it, I burst into tears again because it doesn't work and it doesn't matter. During the hour marked reading on our new daily schedule, he brought me a frozen book about Anna and Elsa, two sisters who couldn't be more different and didn't get along. And as if willed by the magic of the ice queen herself, one daughter came storming into the house, slamming the screen door in anger and tears because her sister wouldn't give her the lounge chair she wanted to sit in. I poured liquor into my never finished and now cold coffee and added ice to the mug too. We decided to try yoga under the sun on the patio for a change of scenery and pace. So swept up the chicken poop and I popped the lens back into my sunglasses I broke earlier from throwing them across the room in frustration while yelling, fuck. Yoga was interrupted by another child's problem. Tears, need for help as a last ditch effort. I turned on the generic peaceful meditation music from my iTunes library on my phone and lay on my yoga mat on the patio watching all the birds and the tree above me chirping and flitting. My phone dinged. President Trump provides an update on coronavirus. Interrupted the music. 
and I was certain one of them would shit right on my face. The birds, that is. They didn't. They just moved freely, so light, and flew away. For my family, the coronavirus pandemic in America and lockdown hit in the middle of a lot of medical appointments, many of which we put off or rescheduled, but some were just too important for us to cancel. This poem is called Zoom Therapy. We got an email that said we should be aware that it may not be as secure, that there is a higher chance of misunderstanding tone or misreading inflection and an accidental misinterpretation. Are we okay with those possibilities? The psychologist reminds us each time she's sequestered alone in a room so it's as private as possible. And we try to give space here too, but our anxiety and disorders are not private. They are loud and invasive and too important to be intimidated by telehealth. As a mother, I found it really tricky to navigate my sexuality. And as two adults and parents who like to have sex, um, we found it, my husband and I, even trickier uh, to try to find time to do it with three small children who never leave the house now and are constantly by our sides. So this poem is called Ode to Parents Who Fuck. We often use holidays as an excuse to lock the bedroom door, undress, shut the windows, bend over the unmade bed, whisper. We tell them we've got gifts to wrap, eggs to fill, lists to discuss, plans to make in privacy that doesn't exist. Even though you're the tooth fairy, Easter Bunny, and Santa Claus. You sometimes lie to make your own magic happen. As I began to become critical of diet culture and how it's driven by consumerism for at least, at least 15 years ago now, I fully rejected it and began speaking out about it and making art and writing about bodies, specifically per the pervasive nature of fat phobia, at least 11 years ago. I wasn't surprised to see it rear its ugly head um, with a vengeance in healthism during the coronavirus. People find, I find people all over the internet and otherwise in real life continuously commenting about gaining the quarantine 15 in reference to the freshman 15 or weight gain that some uh, young folks often have when they first start college. And now there's a lot of discussion about quote unquote losing the COVID-19 in reference to those 19 pounds, give or take. This poem is called Quarantine 15. 
Almost right away, they began. The memes, jokes, photos, lamenting cookies, couches, calories. The fear of fat so great, paranoid about a few pounds, so shackled to a scale, weighed down by shame, in the middle of the most destructive global pandemic of our lifetimes, still consumed by bullshit beauty standards. And also as a feminist, academic, and writer, I love to learn the history of words. I like to play with double entendres. I love to subvert and challenge and reclaim words. And I do it often in my work and in, in my activism uh, with words like bitch, slut, and fat. This is a poem about a reclamation or a rethinking about another word titled Antibody. The German physician and scientist who cured syphilis called it anticorpor, but medical historians say it probably should have been called antitoxin instead, as it means against a toxin, not against a body. Although there is perhaps no better time in America than a pandemic to highlight how anti-body we really are. Anti-black body, anti-fat body, anti-Asian body, anti-trans body, anti-poor body, body anti-female body. We are not protected or immune to any of it. After a very long spring at home with three young kids under the age of 16, we were all hopeful for a safer world to come summer and the ability to get out for our favorite activities like sports and planned vacations and playing in the water. They were all canceled, of course, as we now know. And the news and the reality was very hard to take. This poem is called City Pool. My kids have grown up on the sides of the city pool. They used to fall asleep in my arms, rocked by the waves of the deep end, learning to crawl, walk, wade, jump, swim, dive off the concrete edges. They have saved all their quarters for snow cones, lollipops, ice cream sandwiches from the snack shack. I have saved to buy a family pass for the summer and that has saved my sanity. Year after year, bikini after bikini, sipping my secretly spiked lemonade from the sidelines. Eyes closed, face to the sun, pretending to be at a Mexican resort or a Hawaiian beach, anywhere but Boise, Idaho. A much needed summertime ritual, a mother's respite. But now, for the first time in my decade of cool 
desert bliss, the pools are closed for the season. And the news made me feel like I might be drowning. As a fat feminist body image activist, I've been working in social justice for a long time. I've been also actively using the internet and social media specifically for over a decade. And as a pretty well-known public figure, I have a lot of experience uh, with trolls and hateful comments. And I've watched platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and TikTok even ebb and flow. I use them for change, good and positivity, but I've never seen them as volatile as they are now. This poem is called Keyboard Warriors. You need to post about this. Not like that, eye roll emoji. Why are you posting about this? Not your job, puke emoji. Stay in your lane. Occupy all the lanes. Call out. Call in. Calm down, say the tone police. Commas matter, say the grammar Nazis. Stand up. Speak up. Sit down. Shut up. Share this. Wait, share that. Do your homework and so much emotional labor. If you don't understand what I'm saying, Google it. One of the reasons we decided to move our family back to Idaho 14 years ago was its plethora of wild public land and its small population. Both of these things are changing rapidly. It continues to be important for us to take our kids camping and hiking outdoors, perhaps now more than ever. This poem is called Edna Creek. In the past, it's often bothered me that there is no phone reception in Idaho's wilderness. Staying connected even when camping felt necessary, important, safe, but now all I want is to be forced off the internet to spend three wild and free days without hateful tweets, Facebook conspiracies, shitty news articles, coronavirus counts, political propaganda. We were saturated in that forest forested smell of ponderosa pines, river water, bug spray, campfire smoke, we had no idea what day or what time it was. We just kept hiking, cooking, fishing, resting. There was a destructive fire here two years ago, but now new beautiful things have sprouted up among the black dead trees, like mushrooms, Indian paintbrush, woolly sunflowers, fireweed, creating a new, reminding us that's the way of the world, burning it all down, and slowly, over time, building it back up. So not only have I seen the internet become an increasingly, increasingly negative place, 
I've seen an uptick locally in in-person harassment, bigotry, and hatred. I wrote a poem about some that has recently happened to me, which is a drop in the bucket compared to stories from friends in less socially acceptable bodies. It's called Summer Body. It's happened twice in the last month. I'm standing outside in my bikini, loading or unloading our kayaks in or out of our truck. Sunglasses on, wind in my silver hair, light kissing my brown stretch marked skin. My fat body strong, tired, enjoying summer when she drives by and laughs out her window loudly at me. As women, we all remember that mean, sharp guffaw directed our way on the playground, taunts from fellow schoolgirls. Only this time, it erupts from the angry mouths of grown women. Their laughter comes from fear of losing a game I long ago quit playing because I'm not the competitive type, but also I've already won. Humans are social creatures and we really need one another to survive and thrive and isolation is hard on us. I also know from lots of experience that while technology is a helpful tool in spreading information and staying connected, that real change, education and connection can only happen when we are vulnerable and when we are face to face. My final poem tonight is titled Screens. Maybe if I could sit close enough to accidentally rub your thigh with mine, Brush your hand when you give me something. Put my arm around your waist when someone snaps a photo. Hold the door for you. I could feel your pain, anger, worry, sadness. Maybe if I could pet your dog or meet your children, share a cup of coffee with you on your patio, or you could bring me a beer from your fridge I could hear your joy, kindness, stories. Maybe if I could look into your eyes, I could really listen. Thank you. All right, thank you so much, Amy. Um, one more round. I mean, Amy Pence-Brown, um, wonderful stuff. And um, she was our final reader of the entire series, at least for now. Like I mentioned before, we're going to do a couple of other events out of here, hopefully, in the near future, while the weather is still good enough. But yeah, those were awesome. Very torn from the headlines of your life and from the news and from everything. It's very raw look at uh, life right now. And I wasn't familiar. Yeah, I knew your work more as an activist and the TED Talk and stuff like that before the CCC you know, award came around, and um, I wasn't aware that you wrote poetry so wonderfully. And how has that been an outlet for you as an artist, as a 
an activist even? Um, well, I'm a writer, mostly, of lots of personal stories. Um, I've been a blogger. I started as a mommy blogger, gosh, I don't know, 12 years ago or so, a long time ago, um, and write for other local or in, and national and international magazines and, and newspapers and things like that, and have and they're mostly personal essays with a social justice bent. I would say most of my social media posts, if any of you follow me on social media, they're quite lengthy and, and verbose. Um, there's a lot of words that go with, with the photos. And I have been writing poetry since the third grade, actually. It was the first sort of creative writing I ever did. And I was in the Idaho Young Authors Contest. I don't know if they still do that. I think they might for like elementary school kids. Um, and I won like first prize for this poetry um, about camels, really, um, oddly enough. But I, I've written off and on uh, over the years. Sometimes I'm more compelled to poetry than um, longer form narrative. And for some reason, um, it felt like a really great way to uh, process a lot of feelings I was having during the pandemic. This has been a highly lucrative, creative time for me, which is true in my life in general, that um, sadness and fear and bad things happening really fuel me creatively. So I have a lot. I have 21 poems. I think I'm committed to like 30 before the year end. I will have no problem uh, filling that up. That is interesting. Yeah, we were talking about that with Russell, you know, who maybe felt a little bit daunted and mm -hmm. myself too, just in the writing and, and creative side. But it is interesting, uh, you know, why do you think that is for your own, you know, psyche work effort? Uh, I, it's been the same for my work in body image activism. And it's really, that's been my fuel as a feminist, I think, as well, is when things are wrong or I see something um, problematic, I feel compelled to talk about that. Um, and address the hard things. Um, I think vulnerability is a key to my work um, and key to what draws people to my work. Uh, and sometimes it's really helpful. I've gotten a lot of great feedback from these poems. I've shared some of them on social media, on my Facebook page and Instagram, and people love them. Um, and, and it speaks to them a lot. So I, I can tell that it's a shared experience, you know, um, some of these things that feel so you feel so alone when they're happening to you in your house or especially as a parent um, and I don't have a lot of time if any of you are parents you know that this is not ideal <laughs> situation for anything for working for being creative for cleaning your kitchen for changing your sheets for doing laundry for schooling your kids it's not ideal um, but for some reason I I'm real good at carving it out in short moments and maybe that's why poetry has been my the poems are fairly short and so um it's it's not a lot of time commitment for me you can lock the door for that stuff too yeah yeah so maybe so but that's great that you've been, it's been so productive for you and i am curious kind of about your origin story a little bit as maybe an activist or someone who's taken these issues on you said about 11 plus years you feel like you've been out there like what was the genesis of that? Like, what made you finally go, fuck it, <laughs> I, I got to do something? Well, it's a, kind of been a lifelong story. And if, if you've seen my TED Talk, I tell some of that um, a little more detail. But as a woman and growing up in Idaho and as a feminist, um, it's been a journey for me. From college, I would say mostly, I would say my first feminist act was 
defiantly cutting off all my hair in high school to the chagrin of my parents. But um, and then it went on to be a little bit more than that. But really, the catalyst for my body image activism, I have to say, is becoming a mother. And so motherhood really fueled that for me. Um, I my first child uh is a daughter. She's 16. Um, and then my second child, who is now 12, was also a girl. And I wanted the world to be different for them. Um, and growing up in a plus-sized, larger body um, that was shamed for that and constantly trying to change my body. And it would never change um, up to the standards that everyone else wanted it to be. Even though I was fine with it, how it was, there was a lot of um, internal struggle there. And I finally was done and had done all this work um, personally on that. And it would have been a lot, about 11 years ago when I finally turned to Google, because that's what all good researchers do, right? Um, and Googled the words, why am I fat and happy? Uh, because I knew no one else in real life who felt that way. Um, and what turned up, of course, were pages and pages of ads for more diets, because like Google does, it picks up keywords, and it picked up fat and changed happy to unhappy. Um, and I kept scrolling long enough to find two blogs that forever changed my life um, and led me to other blogs and, and tumblers and writers and activists who were actually feminists doing work in body image um, justice, other people of color, because of course it's more than just about the size of our body, but the color of our skin and how others perceive that, right? Our abilities, our disabilities, um, our sexuality, our gender, how we express that outwardly, our bodies house, all of these things. So it led me down a rabbit hole of books. And as an academic, I read and read and read. And then it started showing up more and more in my art and my writing um, and on my Facebook wall. And people seem to like what I had to say about that too. Yeah, we well, certainly <laughs> have a wonderful following. And where can we follow you, people? Um, blogs? Uh, Yes, I have a website, amypencebrown.com, and then also Instagram under my name. You'll find it, but it's Idaho Amy is my handle there, and also on Twitter, but I hate Twitter, so I'm not active there. Uh, Facebook, I have a face public figure Facebook page that's Amy Pence Brown, writer, artist, body image activist, and I share a lot of stuff there. And then as well, I think uh, Christian mentioned the Facebook group, the Boise Rad Fat Collective. Um, there are about 2,400 members in that group now. You don't have to be fat or live in Boise to join. You just have to be rad, as in radical and open-minded. Um, and we do a lot of fun stuff. Typically, we meet up in real life once a month, but 2020's been a little different. So our community's been mostly online, which is also quite powerful, though. Well, thanks for all that and for being a part of this series. And congrats on the CCC Award and for all your work. And um, let's, give her, let's give them all a round. How about that? Lily and Russell. Amy, thanks so very much for coming out on a rather pleasant night and uh, closing out this part of our series of Bloom here at the Garden. Um, and I do have some passes for each of you guys to the Garden. I just got handed those, so we'll get those to you after. Um, so you can come out to the, the Great Garden Escape or some of the other cool stuff they're doing for the rest of the summer and into fall. But uh, anyway, yeah, we'll look for this stuff coming out on our social media stuff for Story Fort and Tree Fort for rebroadcasting some of these awesome words today and just thanks for being here and thanks for being safe and socially distanced and wearing masks and all that good stuff and uh yeah have a good evening and the rest of the summer and we'll be in touch soon
Okay, everyone. Hey, that was our show for the day. We wanted to say a big old thank you to Amy, Lily, and Russell for being a part of the Bloom series. We want to thank all the rest of the artists and creatives who came out and participated over the course of five very cool events. We want to say thanks to Treefort and Treefort Music Fest fans and listeners of the podcast. Um, you can find out more in fact, you can find out all things TreeFord at TreeFordMusicFest.com. I want to say thank you to Up Is The Down Is The for providing our awesome theme music. We want to say thanks to the Eavesdrop Studios team. Um, the Eavesdrop Network can be found at Ease-Drop.com. And hey, we hope you're doing well, staying safe, and we will see you at the fest. Tomorrow. Tomorrow never came